Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. This episode is a bit of a departure from my normal format. In this case, the original idea was simply to have a continuation of a discussion Dean Rader and I began back in episode 47. If you haven't listened to that, I definitely recommend jumping back to that discussion about his work as a poet and writer. Dean and I share an interest in engaging with socio-political themes in our creative work. So when we had that previous conversation, we ended with the idea that we'd come back for a part two, revisit this concept uh, about how we both make pieces with these socio-political themes and, and content, things that we're both very passionate and interested in. And uh, But we're also, also both curious about interdisciplinary work and learning about the other's practice and how, how one practice might brush up against another. So in that spirit, I had sent Dean a number of links of some pieces of mine, some speaking percussion pieces and also just other percussion pieces that I had written. And uh, as it turns out, he had a lot of questions and turns out I had some long answers. So funny enough, the conversation we then ended up having was mostly about my work. And I so rarely get to talk about my own stuff on this podcast, so it was a, a, a special treat to do that. Really great to have the opportunity, and uh, I want to say a special thanks again to Dean for his interest in, in that work and the terrific conversation uh, that, uh, that we had. If you're curious about some of the pieces that we're talking about, I'll make sure and include links in the show notes, and you could visit my website, john-lane.com, and uh, all of the pieces will be there. Finally, before we get to our conversation, I'll just mention that uh, Dean and I also uh, spoke about potentially having a part three. He has a terrific new uh, book that he's a co-editor on called Bullets into Bells, uh, published by Beacon Press, that looks to be a very powerful work about uh, about and responding to gun violence in, in our uh, United States. So uh, that should be very interesting. So stay tuned for a potential part three. For now, here's our conversation. Uh, okay, so you mentioned that um, you had some questions for me. Did you want to start there? or Sure. Okay. Um, so thanks for sending me links to all of your work. It is fascinating. I love the various topics that you're taking on, and I'm so intrigued by how you orient sort of non-linguistic work toward uh, social and political issues. Uh, but I wanted to start, I wanted to ask you about Sparrow Song. Okay. And, and I was hoping you could say a little bit more about um, what you called, I think, uh, a graphic score. And it looks like uh, somehow you used um, the photos of birds on a wire and did you put them literally on a page? Like, tell me more about that process. Okay. Well, first, let me back up and explain what a what a graphic score is, because there there may be lots of people who have no idea what that is. So, so I, I'm probably one of them. In so in the um, in the fifties and certainly in the sixties and on into the seventies, there was this explosion of really interesting notations. Composers started getting interested in you know, getting away from standard notations and into all kinds of fanciful, uh, amazing, interesting notations. And so pieces for percussion, which is what I do, uh, mm -hmm. tended to be a great way for composers to experiment with notation because with percussion, there really is no standard notation. I mean, unless you're writing for a a, ma a keyboard instrument like a xylophone where there are pitches, but but if you're writing oh. for a set of flower pots and some cowbells and some wood blocks, I mean, there's no set notation for that. The other the other thing that composers ran into when they were writing for percussion is that our uh, our instrumentation is very unique from player to player. So I have a collection of sounds that's very different from 
some of my okay. colleagues. And sure. so, <clears throat> so composers just started experimenting with different notational systems to kind of uh, partner with a, a musician, in, in this case a percussionist, to create interesting sounds and textures without standard notation. So that piece, Sparrow Song, was actually, uh, when I was in graduate school at, at Cincinnati, I was taking this percussion literature class with Al Adi, and he introduced us to all of these graphic notations from the, mostly from the 60s, and uh, showed us all this huge variety of interesting uh, things. Um, and I got really excited by it and um, started learning some of the, you know, big graphic notation pieces of uh, Herbert Brunn. I learned one of these really big fanciful scores. That one, I think, was from, uh, well, anyway, uh, I don't want to have to go on to all that. But I started getting real interested in this graphic notation from his class. And so as an assignment, uh, he, you know, as a grade activation assignment, is what he called these, um, we, we could do something creative. We could make a piece, we could write a paper, we could do performance, whatever. So I decided I would make a piece. And I've always, for a long time, been intrigued by how birds gather on electrical wires and often imagine some rhythms or music that could be made from from looking at that and so I compiled a whole bunch of photographs of birds on wires and I literally put them up uh, like taped them to my window and then put the score page on top of it and sort of just traced the shapes and sometimes I traced uh, directly on onto the uh, score like in the boxes that you see on that score those are just layered up you know, tracings. And then I sort of invented my own rhythms along the, the perimeters. Um, so, so a combination of tracing and inventing fanciful, you know, rhythms, uh, imagining how birds might gather. And then the, the realization of it was just, uh, it was actually, I might've been Al's idea to, to play it on logs, you know, and he said that, um, he, he had some logs out at his place. He has a sort of place out in the country and uh, outside of Cincinnati and New Richmond, uh, Ohio. And he had these beautiful logs. And he so I went out there and uh, also found some and sort of collected some. And uh, that man, that that was basically it. That's what led to it. And then I'm interested in spoken texts as part of yeah. uh, performance. And so I just happened upon this uh, the writing of uh, Burroughs and he uh, had this beautiful essay about the the uh, coming of the birds in the spring and it was just this beautiful you know naturalistic essay common of naturalists of that period of the out of the dusky silences there comes the first sparrows song it is not music only suggestion, a sign of joy, the herald of spring, the spirit of the woods and fields made audible. So, so what do the graphic notes, what do they indicate? Like, is it timber, pitch, rhythm? volume like what what do they what do they tell you yeah the little dots just tell me when to strike the the logs and then you're, you're in, that, in my particular score it's really open in terms of what implements you use and how fast you go along it but the idea is that your eye just sort of follows along the line and when you see a dot you you play a note on the log or there's instructions for <clears throat> how to realize the various parts of it in the in the instructions but uh basically you're looking at the dots and playing notes when you see the dots and and depending on how fast your eye is scanning across then that will give you different kinds of uh, rhythms and different speeds and and that kind of thing and the idea is to just be as varied as possible and uh with that particular piece too you you're asked to do layers so you you pre-record yourself playing different passes and maybe trying different tempos, different mallets. So you end up with this sort of collage of, uh, you know, articulations and rhythms and, and, and that's sort of how it works. So you could have a totally specific, um, score 
based on the various instruments that you wanted to use, right? So you could have something that would tell you to hit a log or something that would tell you to hit a cowbell or something like that. Absolutely. You know, if I wanted to if I wanted to write a very specific piece for four logs, uh, I could definitely write that out, notate it, tell you exactly what to, you know, what implement to hit with and, and, uh, uh, you know, rhythm and traditional notation. But, but the way that I did this one is in that sort of fanciful graphic style. So when you hear, if you heard someone else play my piece, it would sound different because they would choose right. different logs, you know, different pitches. Yep. They would maybe interpret the rhythm slightly different, but it would be, you would recognize it as the same piece. And and that's what's, I think, really interesting about graphic notation is that it's a way for you to kind of make the piece your own and become sort of co-collaborator, co-conspirator is what the composer Herbert Brun would, would call this. You're, you're conspiring together to make something. Uh, so interesting. So, yeah. And so then how literally did the visual, I don't know, the visual scene of the birds on the wire get encoded into the notations themselves? Like how did you, how did you sort of work that on a creative level? Well, I, I, I thought of um, sort of a, a workable framework, you know, like what kind of conceit was, was I going for? So in this case, there are, um, around the edges of the frame, there are very definite rhythmic gestures. And either you're playing on the logs or you're playing with brushes in the air, and but you're actually playing pretty definable sort of rhythms as your eyes follow around the the you know, the frame. And then I right. thought I thought it would be nice to not have it be all so rhythmic. I wanted it to also be free. So at any moment you could jump into inside of the frame where the notations are a little more elaborate, a little more fanciful, and they go in all kinds of different directions. And so that allows for a more, um, you know, just a different kind of texture, a more free improvisatory kind of texture, maybe with different, lots of different dynamics and shapes and gestures and so you get this juxtaposition of those two kind of musical ideas, and that's basically informed the the shape of the score, where it has some frames and it has some some windows, and uh, you kind of cycle back and forth uh, between those two uh, gestural kind of ideas. That's, that's really fascinating. <laughs> so, so has anyone else ever played this particular score? Uh, no one else has played my piece uh, that I know of. It, it went into uh, a book. The book was Notations 21 uh, and edited by Teresa Sawyer, who had put out this kind of cattle call for graphic notation pieces. The, the history of this notations project goes all the way back to John Cage, who wrote a book yeah. in the 60s called Notations, which was supposed to right. be sort of a picture of what was going on. And, and that was a big, you know, influence on, on me too in, in creating this score, was looking at all of those uh, scores from the 60s and, and early 70s. And um, I think that book was published in the 60s. I don't know. I don't remember exactly the date, late, late 60s maybe. And then so uh, Teresa had the idea to do an, a new one for the 21st century and, and getting composers and taking a picture of what's going on right now and all the manner of uh, notations that are out there. And so so I submitted it for that and it, and it got selected. So, you know, maybe someone has seen it in that book and has thought about playing it or has, has played it. But uh, to my knowledge, no one else has done it. So it's it's got a little bit of a, you know, it's got a little bit of resistance to it because you have to go out and, you know, collect logs and <laughs> figure out how right. you're gonna how you're gonna <laughs> you know how you're gonna mount the logs on the state on the you know you know how you're gonna do it and so it's it's a pretty big project for somebody to take on, and then the notation itself is is pretty uh, difficult to you know understand at first so so I think there's a bit of a resistance to it but. Uh, I've certainly done it a number of times, and uh, it's also kind of hard to travel with, again, because the logs, you know. Sure, so, yeah. Um, 
But I imagine that someone could probably invent a traveling version of it or a smaller, you know, a little bit smaller version that that could easily be um, taken around. But, you know, and it was also kind of inspired by the work of Harry Parch, you know, this whole aesthetic of of having the visual element of the the instrument making itself be part of the the art and uh, that was also part of it. there's this german guy volker staub who who al introduced me to who does a sim- name. yeah it's a great name uh he does all these kind of really uh, interesting instruments out of wood he also plays logs but he makes drums out of wood and these big glass instruments that are kind of similar to the harry parch stuff so you can you can check out volker uh, i think he's got a website it's probably all in german um but uh, anyway, that that's kind of a a long-winded answer to your <laughs> to your questions. No, no, it's, it's it's fascinating. So speaking of Alan Ott and organic uh, materials, um, maybe you could say a little bit more about the the Innocence Project because that too was was really fascinating. So <clears throat> the Innocence Project is we're actually this spring. Al is coming out to Sam Houston State, and he's going to be here for a, a two-week residency, and we're going to expand this piece. And one of the things that's about this piece is it's kind of hard to give you a thumbnail sketch of what the piece is about. Right. And and that's always been sort of one of our problems with, with trying to get performances of the piece is once, once someone has experienced it, they, they get it. You know, oh, wow, this is a really powerful work about, you know, our, our um, social justice system and wrongful imprisonment and exoneration. But, you know, I think people don't know, really know a lot about that issue. And so it's hard to kind of talk about. So part of what we're going to try to do with this residency is uh, make a video where we talk about the piece and play uh, you know, short clips of, of the music and uh, to kind of hopefully get some more performances of it. So let, let me tell you about the piece itself. Yeah. So in, in 2006, there was this uh, photographer, Taryn Simon, and she uh, had a an exhibit of photography called The Innocence. And basically what these were were uh, huge wall-sized portraits of people who had been wrongly convicted of crimes and had served prison time and then were exonerated through DNA evidence. And her portraits placed them either at the scene of the alibi, of their alibi, where they actually were when the crime was committed, or at the scene of the crime. And she was playing on this idea of how technology, her her quote is, technology has the ability to blur truth and fiction because a lot of these people were convicted on uh, you know, eyewitness misidentification and yeah, were, yeah. Or, or they were picked out in a lineup and then were sent to prison. And anyway, it's a very com- complex issue. So we, in 2006, we were invited, Al was invited to put together some kind of performance art thing with, with, with a theater director, Michael Burnham, at the opening of this exhibit at the Cincinnati Contemporary Art Center. And when when he was uh, asked to do that, he came to me and said, would you like to collaborate on this with me and, and make some some piece for this? So I jumped at the opportunity, said, absolutely, let's, let's do it. And we started diving in. We started diving into Taryn Simon's work. We started investigating the issue itself and, and learning about it and found out that this is an incredibly powerful issue and an important one. And so so we did that first performance as part of a kind of performance art thing that included sort of some movement and theater from some actors at uh, from Cincinnati and with uh, Michael Burnham's sort of direction. And then we provided these sort of musical interludes. Well, we had such an amazing experience doing this that we decided this is really important. We need to make a concert piece out of this. So we expanded it a little bit, made about a, I don't know how long it was at that time, maybe 15 minutes or something. And mm-hmm. then we, uh, over the years, have kept at it. And we've kept building it and kept making it bigger and bigger. And then 
for the last few years, we've been collaborating with uh, this group called Bent Frequency out of Atlanta. Stuart Gerber was also a student of Alan Audi's, a percussionist, and he is one of the co-founders of that group and knew of our piece and and invited us to come and, and do it uh, with them. And so they did uh, the second half of the program. We did the first half of the program. We combined it with another uh a couple of prison-themed pieces by Frederick Jeffsky about the Attica prison revolt. So we did the first half on the Innocents and the second half on Attica. And we've done that show a, a number of times. We've organized a few different, uh, like, symposium-type events and residencies. We were just recently at the University of Georgia uh, we did a, where we did a residency there with the uh, Wilson Center for the Humanities, and we got together with the law school and did panel discussions. We had exonerees speak. Uh, we did that. Excuse me. We did that also here at Sam Houston, where we had a, uh, you know, some of the criminal justice professors, a lawyer from the Innocence Project, and an exoneree. So we've tried to kind of contextualize this thing <clears throat> in those kinds of formats, and. Uh, but right now the piece is about uh, right around 20 minutes or so, and we're, we're thinking to expand it to be maybe like a concert length, so 45, 50 minutes, something like that. And, and, and basically what I can tell you about the piece is that we, we examine the issue of wrongful imprisonment and exoneration from a lot of different angles. We, we examine the issue of... Um, you know what what it's like, to, what 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 it could possibly be like to serve prison time, being being innocent, and the the monotony of of a day in the life. We looked at it from sort of socio political points of view. We looked at it from the point of view of a victim, uh, and uh, yeah, just lots of different lots of different areas. We looked at it from the legal standpoint. We're we're thinking now about maybe adding a a, a piece about. Um, interrogations, because a lot of uh, confessions are forced confessions through really harsh interrogation techniques. Uh, anyway, there's so many different levels to this issue, and so we kind of take a prism approach where we we shine light on all of these different aspects of this issue, and at the end, you, you get a very powerful sense of... Uh, you know the, the the trouble in our in our social justice system regarding regarding this particular issue, and what's really fascinating is when we started doing this piece in 2006. I mean, we were just sort of made aware that this was a thing that was going on, that there was this innocence project that was, you know, helping to exonerate people who were in prison wrongfully. Right. We didn't know about that, you know, and so in 2006, there was something like when we, there's some line in our piece that uh, at that time, there was, you know, 500 years uh, of collected time that people, uh, that innocent people have served in prison. That number now, in 2017, is in the thousands. I mean, thousands yeah. and thousands of years. I mean, um, I don't have that figure right in front of me, but it's it's literally just compounded and it's fascinating that a piece that we made in 2006 about what was an important issue then has only become more and more important as the years have gone on which is unusual about political pieces you know i mean i think that that um that piece the frederick jeffsky pieces also have remained relevant because that attica prison revolt was such a, a, a defining moment in you know the criminal justice uh, system and it it's retained its its relevancy but you have to kind of know something about attica you know you have to kind of know something about that issue to sort of get get the full scope of that piece but this piece is so relevant today it's it's just seemingly more and more relevant as as each you know year goes by, so we're we're hopeful that we can do this this piece more and uh, and get it out there. Um, I agree with you. It's a really cool piece, and it seems particularly relevant. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you decided on. Um, I guess maybe the 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 musical 
tone or mood or how you how you landed on a I'm trying to think of the right word, a kind of musical style yeah. that you thought was in concert with the political work that you wanted the piece to do. Well, I think one of the things that we did was we looked at um, how how can we reference music or or sounds that fit into this world. So we looked at the at the at some of the roots of of what we were talking about. So this this world in general or this world of those wrongly convicted the the world in general so so we yeah. do a lot of found sounds there's a lot of uh uh-huh. you know at one moment and maybe this is a, a maybe the most uh characteristic moment of this piece is that we we actually uh smash rocks with with hammers right. which is a thing yeah. that you know and i i took basically what i did was in the 19 gosh when was it 40s, I believe it was in the 1940s. Uh, Alan Lomax recorded some prison songs at Angola State Prison in Georgia, and these were released as records, and they're they're available. People can find these. What I did was I took several of those songs and I made I made loops out of the the singing and the the hammering of the rocks because on the recording these were work songs, so they were smashing rocks and singing these songs. And so I, I put those into a loop, and we were trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do with this? And I said, you know, we, we both sort of came to the idea that, well, I think we have to smash rocks along with them, you know, and, and that's going to be really powerful for an audience to see us up there actually physically breaking the rocks, feeling the weight and the, you know, we get the dust rising in the air. That It's a whole experience. And you're, yeah. you're listening to these prison songs, and we're just bashing away on these rocks. And when they see the piece, they come and they talk to us afterwards and they say, oh, the rock smashing was just unbelievable. Um, another uh, another thing that we do in the piece, another sound that we brought into this world was uh, the Innocence Project. Every year they have a sort of a convention, a meeting of newly exonerated people and, and exonerees that get together and tell their stories. And, you know, they have sort of a day of this kind of thing and their talks and, and things and one of the things that they do is they, uh, and this, again, you can find this on YouTube, they have an exoneree get up and sort of tell the, a short, you know, story. They'll say their name, they'll say their prison number, and and in this particular one, they had these cards that had their prison number on it. So they would say their name, they would say their number, and then they would tear up their their prison number and say, you know, today I'm free, and they would tear this <laughs> thing in half. So we took That's that cool. yeah so we took that idea and we we brought that into the piece we have pieces of paper with those numbers printed on them and then I have like a set of uh, paper like newspapers that I'm rustling and playing with the newspapers and a, like a cardboard box and and Al is actually holding up the number as the actual exonerees are saying their name and reading their number and then we're tearing up the paper as as part of this they didn't do the crime. 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 I was in prison in the state of Georgia for 16 years for a crime I did not commit. They didn't do the crime. 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 They
I'm free. They didn't do the crime. 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 My name is Neil Miller. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts. They didn't do the crime. 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 They gave me this number. W four nine six two eight. Today I'm a free man. You know, we're kind of doing that. There's also, the, you know, uh, these are largely, I mean, if you look at the statistics, they're largely African-American men that are uh, wrongly convicted. I mean, over and over again, the percentages are unbelievable. And so we, we wanted to somehow bring that, uh, somehow reflect this idea. So we, we uh, went to the idea of maybe there's some African instruments that we could we could use so we we use some uh, there's some African uh, rhythms a West African bell rhythm that I play at one point on a glass bottle. There's yeah. uh, African uh, imbiras which are where these little sort of wooden instruments with little metal tongs that you pluck with your thumbs. And, yeah, a lot uh, earth, wind, and fire. <laughs> a lot of people have seen these things, the sort of toy things made of gourds, these kind of things. Yeah. Uh, but these are the uh, the imbiras uh, that that come from Africa and uh, that we use in our in our show. So uh, that's the kind of thing. And then, of course, there's lots of spoken text and lots of dialogue. And uh, some of the expansions that we're thinking about doing with the piece involve more uh, storytelling, more uh, some abstract, some more or less abstract. But uh, the difficulty in all of this is trying to do a piece that's about an issue without necessarily telling everyone what we think they should think, you know, without being too on the nose about it. And uh, here's a good example, that rock piece that I talked about earlier. That that rock piece starts with us calling out the names and then saying, you know, Marvin Anderson served 23 years, you know, at, do you understand? Right. And then we hit the yeah. rocks. And then we say another name and, and years, and do you understand? And <clears throat> one of my other former teachers, he came to our concert once, and he said, you know, uh, I do understand. <laughs> I, I do understand what you're saying. And, and I think by you saying, do you understand, it's a little too pointed, actually. So I took that criticism back to Alan. I said, you know, I think he's got a point here. I think we need to soften this a little bit somehow and, and make it about our perspective that I can't understand, I don't understand, and let the audience uh, feel that rather than, don't you understand? This is a bad, right. you know, this is terrible. Right. This person served, you know, their half of their life in prison. Do you understand? Yes, I understand. You know, if I'm an audience member, sure, I get it. It's terrible. And we just keep b banging them over the head with it. So we, we softened that. You know, that was an example of one of those things. But, but then some of them are very, very abstract. The, the piece opens with a quote from Thomas Jefferson. And, and there's, so there's things like that. Uh, that, that piece, that is actually excerpted from, a, from another piece. But the quote is, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. And that's how the piece begins. So we, we're drawing on lots of different uh, touch points, you know, around the issue and um, throughout, throughout history, not just, you know, our current, our current time. I mentioned the 1940s field recordings and, and things like that. So does that sort of paint a picture of, of some of the, yeah. how we arrived yeah, yeah, at it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, some of what you said is what I kind of had uh, in mind. Um, I noticed the Mbira, and I was wondering about the African instruments. Um, and I was curious about the relationship between sort of like the breaking rocks and the individuals. Because there's that great photograph of, uh, I think it's Clarence Harrison, like holding the hammer, yeah. you know, on the, on the rock. And he looks so, so happy <laughs> about to break that rock. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was from our... Um... That was from our uh, residency in in Georgia. Georgia, yeah, yeah, and he was there and and told his story and uh, just he he. It's always it's always great when we have these exonerees come and we hear their stories and 
The first time we heard Exonerees speaking was at the Taryn Simon at her exhibit in Cincinnati back in 2006. And as part of that exhibit, I don't and I don't even know if this exhibit still tours anymore, but um, if anybody out there gets a chance to see it, it's really powerful. But it, it, she has a video of some of these exonerees, you know, talking about how how difficult their life is now that they're out of prison and oh, and how sure. this you know how this experience had affected them and it's just heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. And we, when we went to the performance for the first the first time we performed the piece, you know, we walked through the gallery and looked at the photographs, and then we sat down and watched this video and. Both of us were just in tears and th- and th- looking at each other and thinking, how are we going to go play music? You know, like, how are we going to, we got to do something, you know, we got to do something to help these people. This is a terrible, terrible thing. And that, that experience kind of stuck with us. Of course, we kept, kept doing the piece and we kept building it. And uh, I mentioned that story to when we were in Georgia this last year for that residency at the University of Georgia, I mentioned it to one of the lawyers who was on this panel discussion, I said that to him and <clears throat> was re- was reacting to, you know, we, we think this is an important issue and we, we want to continue doing this piece, but we feel sometimes a little bit sheepish about here we are as two privileged, you know, musicians who, who go and do this music about this piece and um, we're not really volunteering for the cause or, or, you know, we're helping to donate money here and there and we're raising awareness. But he said, actually, what you're doing is far more powerful than volunteering for the Innocence Project. He said, we have law students who, who come and, and will, you know, go through the, the files and help file things and, and do work for us. We, we have people that volunteer like that, but they don't have this, the skills that you have to advocate for this issue. So he said, I actually think that what you're doing is, is maybe more important, if not as important as the people who are on the ground, you know, doing the, doing the work. I mean, we need those volunteers and we need fundraisers and all of that, but we actually also need advocates for the issue and, you know, spreading the word to people about, about these important issues. So he said, don't, don't sell yourself short about that. What you're doing is not, not important because it's, it's actually profoundly important for, for engaging people in this issue and and getting those people to you know to volunteer and help and learn about uh, the issue at hand, I think what you're doing is is fascinating um, and super important. And the gratitude of the exonerees must be overwhelming. Yeah, it really is, uh, it, and it's always just heartbreaking to hear their stories. You know, uh, and it's just. It's just story after story. Uh, the Clarence, uh, his story was, you know, also, of course, really, really powerful. And he said, I remember what he said on the panel discussion. He said in the in the courtroom when they when they came out with the uh, guilty verdict, he just he just kept waiting for someone to stand up and say, no, this isn't. He kept waiting for someone to, you know, do something. And his lawyer, you, you know, just they were they were defeated. And uh, it was it was just totally heartbreaking. He just said, I, I kept thinking that they were going to stop the proceedings and somebody was going to stand up and say, no, 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 this isn't this isn't right. Uh, and but it didn't happen. And he went to jail, you know. And um, yeah, so it's totally it's totally heartbreaking. The other thing that's scary is, I mean, it could it could literally happen to anyone. You seem particularly interested in notions of truth, so I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the truth as a knife. Like last time we talked, I think there had not been a recording of this piece, and so I'm wondering if there's a recording now um, that you like, but also if you could just talk a little bit about that piece. I was looking through the score. Uh, (laughs) It's so fun to read. It's such a, a compelling visual text. Um, so maybe you could say a little bit about that. I think listeners, uh, I don't know if they could ever see, uh, the score, but it's so cool, like with the bell and <laughs> the various instruments you have lined up. Um, how does that sound uh, sure. when played and, and what's it like? Well, I haven't recorded the piece yet. I've only just started performing it, uh, 
I played it for the first is it time. Fun? Is it good? Oh, I love it. And you and like audiences it? audiences that I've played it for so far have have responded really positively. My students love it. I mean, they keep telling me that's one of their favorite pieces that they've heard me do and so I you know, I think it's a I think it it's good. It's a it reaches an audience well and um let me I can sort of describe the piece basically. It's it's for uh snare drum yeah. and and uh a cardboard box that acts as kind of a bass drum. And you also have to attach a, a bit of sandpaper to one shoe and some sandpaper to the floor. So that's also a sound that you play. And then you, you set a couple of things on the drum. So you set one of those desk bells that, you know, like yeah. a maitre d' sort of bell. Yeah. Uh, and then at one point you have another um, little piece of metal up there that sort of sounds vaguely metallic like a knife kind of idea. So that's the, basically the sound world of the piece. It sort of centers around the snare drum and the and the uh, kick uh, cardboard box thing. And then there's lots of spoken text. Uh, the first movement I, I totally stole from my poet friend Nick Lance, who uh, I was at a I was writing this piece and I was at one of his poetry readings. I was sort of in the process of writing the piece and I'd forgotten this technique that he had for doing found poetry where. And everybody's experienced this. You go to Google and you start typing in a phrase and it gives you various suggestions yeah. for what you might be typing. And so he had done uh, this Google autocomplete poem and he, he may have done a couple of them, but at that reading he read this one and I'd totally forgotten about it. I'd, I'd read it before, and but I'd forgotten. And I thought, oh, that's the thing I'm going to do for my piece. So I went back to Google immediately. Like I went straight from his reading. I went right back to my computer and, and wrote the, the first movement, basically got the generated the text. So I typed in the truth is and then the letter A. And then it would give me all these incredible choices. And then the truth is B and all these amazing choices. And so I just compiled this whole document with all these. I went through the whole alphabet. And then I would do like the truth about or just the truth and then one letter. And I just got this amazing amount of Google autocomplete text. So then that makes up the, the first movement. And I sort of in the piece take on different characters like there's at one point you you read like a you know a news reader uh there's one point where i'm reading like a i think i say bible thumping uh you know southern preacher uh so it's it's sort of uh, tongue in cheek it's a little funny um but it's all what's really interesting about that first movement is kind of picture of what's happening right now because things came up that were in the news benghazi came up black lives right. black lives matter uh obamacare you know and these were all just generated by google and it and so i've often i've often thought if this gets played you know 10 years from now if i play this piece or someone else plays it there might be certain phrases that they could go back to google and type in a, you know that same letter and get a different choice that that reflects Right, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know the over time. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, so that one's that's the first movement, and then the second movement is based on an essay that I was given, actually by Alan Audi, called uh, "The Truth Is a Knife," and this was an essay by Richard Herbert Howe, who's an artist and photographer, was a student of Herbert Brun, who I mentioned earlier, this composer oh, yeah. from the University of Illinois. So they were students together at the University of Illinois there, and, and this essay um, was given out as part of that class that I that I took from Al. And, and the essay begins, you know, the truth is a knife, and it spins out this analogy of how the truth is like a knife. And it's really clever and cutting and totally couldn't be more relevant to our current socio-political climate and so that makes up the second movement and the whole thing about this piece is that it was a uh, al uh, he keeps coming up in my conversations but he he play, figures very large in my uh, life and in my creative life but but al retired this year from the cincinnati conservatory and so as a retirement gift i put together this book of pieces from former students and from friends and colleagues and so I, I and gifted it to him. We ended up having, I think, around 40 submissions of, of solo pieces and essays and poems and all kinds of things. And so I edited that together 
with uh, another former student, and we we print, had these books printed up and gifted that to him, and then played a concert of some of those pieces, and I played Truth is a Knife on that, that concert. But that's where that piece sort of, the genesis was uh, as a as a submission for this uh, collection of, of pieces de- dedicated to Al. In, that, in the book, I, I tell the story of how I got that essay, Truth is a Knife, in his class, and um, that the statements about the nature of truth are just as relevant now as they were when I got that, you know, faded copy in, in 2005, 2006, something like that. And uh, certainly, I mean, he had been handing out to, it to students since, you know, the late 70s when he started teaching there at Cincinnati. So this was something that was relevant all this time. And uh, basically, the, the, the genesis, too, behind it was... After the election, I was on. Uh, I was just getting onto an airplane to go to Indianapolis to go to the Percussive Arts Society International Convention, where I had to. I was going to give a clinic, and this was literally the day after the election. Hillary was giving her concession speech as I was oh boarding. As I was boarding the plane, I got to Indianapolis, and there were riots in Indianapolis. You know those those days after the elections as this convention was going on. And I told Al was there also. And I told him, I said, I don't think I can just do my clinic and not say anything about what I'm feeling. Cause at the time felt really emotional about it. Like it was a gut punch that, you know, I just thought things were heading in a direction that I didn't anticipate. And I thought we had made all this progress and uh, here we are, we're sort of like going backwards or something. And just felt like a gut punch and he said well you know you should write a piece about it and and perform it at your thing of course this is the night before I have to do this thing so I, I couldn't do that I, I stayed up all night thinking about what I was going to do and I, I drafted a kind of statement it was maybe a paragraph that I read before, you know right at the end of my clinic and and it was about um that I valued education and that I was glad to be here promoting um you know, community and education and that this was really important. And it it ended up being about that. But I, that was the seed for, I needed to do something about my, I had to harness this thing into a, this feeling or this moment into a piece. And then it ended up being, being this truth is a knife and ended up being part of this dedication to Al. So it's all kind of circular in how it, how it came about must be so proud of you well uh, he's he's like a he's he's like a father figure to me uh has really a really a mentor i'm not sure how to best describe our relationship but he's very very important to me in my life and and in my my creative work and i i owe him a, a great debt into you know and to the kind of artist that i have been able to uh become and and what i've been able to do so i owe him a lot yeah, I love uh, how I, I have the same or similar. Um, he, he's now passed fondness for my dissertation director. Uh, he was like a father figure to me, and uh, I looked up to him in, in a number of ways. Um, all right, now for the really important questions. Okay. Uh, who are your favorite uh, drummers in rock bands? Uh, favorite drummers in rock band. You mean like of all time ever? Yeah, all time. And just rock. Like not jazz. Not nothing jazz. Cool. Yeah, okay. nothing cool like jazz or but like rock, pop, classic okay. rock. Okay. Uh, can I give you more than one? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. So my one of my all time favorite drummers of any genre is Stuart Copeland. Oh yeah, sure. So I would say he's absolutely way, way up there. Yeah, he's good. In my formative years, it would be somebody like uh, Lars Ulrich of Metallica. He had actually a huge... I mean, I remember sitting in my uh, garage when I was a teenager, you know, learning learning all the Metallica tunes and playing them at full blast on the, on the stereo and playing along. And then uh, later with Stuart Copeland, he came along a little bit later. Uh, I love John Bonham. I was just going to ask about John, your stance on John Bonham and, and Dave Grohl. Oh, and Dave Grohl is sort of like the the modern day, you know, John Bonham, but I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Dave Grohl. And I like Taylor Hawkins too, the, the Foo Fighters drummer. I, I think he's really fun to watch and uh, brings a lot of energy. So I think those are my, 
I think I would say those are my absolute favorite drummers in the in the rock rock and roll world. What about uh, oh, who's the guy? Uh, oh, Neil Peart. Oh yeah, of course. Neil Peart was huge. Tom Sawyer, man. That that <laughs> tune. That's one that all drummers at some point in all their drummers, lives. Yeah, that's the one. We my, all my yep. friends were obsessed with him. Yep, we all know that one. Yeah, yeah. Rush. Yeah, absolutely huge, huge. That was probably Rush and Metallica. Those are kind of uh, some of my first, uh, you know drum influences aside from some of the jazz stuff that i got into you know a little bit later is there a is there a jazz drummer that i don't know about that i should probably listen to or seek out (sighs) boy uh well my all-time favorite jazz drummer is max roach i Uh love i love max roach uh he released an album of solo drum set pieces called drums unlimited that's one of the classics. Uh, Tony Williams. I love Tony Williams stuff with with Miles Davis. But currently, there's a couple of superstar uh, jazz drummers right now. Uh, my favorite drummer going right now is this guy, Mark Juliana. And he's got a, a couple of projects that he plays with. He just recently released a new album and uh, with his quartet. And he is just fantastic. I just really like his playing a lot. Um, Brian Blade is another favorite uh, of recent years. And Brian Blade is a pretty interesting guy because he he does his own sort of jazz projects, but he also has played on pop and rock albums that you wouldn't even know he was there unless you looked up the personnel. And sure enough, it's Brian Blade. He played with Iron and Wine. I don't know if you know this uh, group. They're sort of a new folk. Yeah, I like uh, Iron and Wine. Yeah, so he played on uh, at least one of their albums, maybe more. Uh, But yeah, Mark Juliana, Brian Blade. um, And uh, and this really interesting drummer, uh, Jojo Mayer, who has a group called Nerve. And uh, if you ever get a chance, anyone out there listening should check out Jojo Mayer's TED Talk, the drummer who does a TED Talk. I mean, there you go. Oh, that's cool. It's called The Distance Between Zero and One, and his whole thing is about bringing in the uh, sort of uh, the DJ culture, electronic music culture, and sort of merging it with human ability, you know, the human drummer ability of, of finding that space between the zero and the one of digital music and, and how. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's smart. It's really interesting. So, yeah, those are kind of my my favorites. Wow, John, thanks so much for answering my questions. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. Well, I, I so rarely get a chance to, to have a podcast where I get to talk about my stuff. So thanks for thanks for asking. Anything else we need to discuss? <sighs> well, um I think we we share a, a common sensibility for bringing the current political socio political moment into our work in some ways. I mean, I think that's something that we we share, and uh, you know, we we, di- we didn't really get a chance to talk about your you know ninety nine poems for the ninety nine percent. That was a uh, a book that I have here in front of me that I had some quite you know had some things to ask about uh, that we didn't get to in our last show, but. Um, but I think, suffice it to say, at the moment that we, I think we share that that sensibility. So I guess maybe the only other thing to maybe end on here is how you navigate. I've talked at length about how I navigated the issue of not being too on the nose about certain political, socio-political ideas and work that that raises questions and and issue with things, but allows people to sort of draw their own conclusions how do you walk that line in in your work that's a great question i think that's the toughest that's the toughest thing for a writer i was thinking about this a little bit when you talked and somehow i feel like in music um especially music that doesn't have as many words or in some cases any words is a more open space for people to feel like they are not being directed one way or the other. Um, In poetry, I think it's really hard to write a politically engaged poem that is not also some sort of propaganda or perhaps 
that is not seen as a form of propaganda or that um, is not simply rhetoric. And so for me, I just try to write poems that in, that engage these issues that mostly ask questions about them or that try to place my own feelings about them within larger questions of, of uncertainty so that um, I, how I feel about something might be clear, but I hope that the poem is a space that asks readers and listeners to enter into it without feeling like they have to agree with me or that I'm asking them to feel a certain way or that I'm asking them to think differently about a certain certain issue. I'm, I'm involved in this book now that actually comes out today, tomorrow. I think its official release date might be tomorrow. And I, and I feel like we maybe talked a little bit about it last time called Bullets into Bells. Yes. I, and it's, yeah. <clears throat> and it's um, 50 poems um, by American poets that address gun violence. And then each poem has a response, a prose response by a survivor of a mass shooting or an activist in the anti-gun violence movement or a police chief or, you know, someone sort of close to, to gun violence, um, including um, Tamir Rice's mother. Um, she actually has this unbelievably moving response to a poem about Tamir Rice. Um, and that book comes out tomorrow. And there are going to be readings around. Well, the goal is that there's going to be a reading in every state um, to promote the book and um, sort of, I guess, now there are already questions about gun violence, but to make the argument that writers and particularly poets are not removed from pertinent social and political issues. Yeah. And so this is one of those cases in which some of the poems in the book take a really strong stance against an issue. Um, and so I'm always interested in how people respond to um, poems that are that are heavily rhetorical, that really make a stance one way or the other. Uh, so I'm curious to see how this this book plays with reviewers and audiences and uh, people within the movement. And if it gets any traction at all with, I don't know, the Fox News set. You emailed me the link to this uh, Beacon Press uh, that's putting it out. So anyone who wants to, to go and find it, it's uh, published by Beacon Press. And uh, yes. you, you sent me the link to it uh, some uh, months ago or weeks ago in an email. And uh, I you were talking about Al earlier. We were talking about him and I I forwarded it instantly to him because I knew he would be interested in it, and he shot an email right back, said ordered. <laughs> so oh, great. So you know this. Uh, who knows? Maybe maybe some of this might in, even end up in our in our piece or uh, as another piece. I've been toying around with the idea of making some piece about gun violence, but I've I've been I've had a hard time finding a way in to the issue, uh, finding a. A subject or a, a way to to do it. So I'll be interesting. To, I'll be very interested to see how what these responses, what what shape these responses take here, and and looking very much forward to reading it. Yeah, I too am really interested to see what happens. We uh, we're starting to get asked to do some some radio interviews. The big release is next week in Boston at the Boston Public Library, and one of the other editors and I are doing an interview that day at WGBH. So uh, there seems to be some interest in like the, you know, more or less mainstream media about how writers and poets and responders might might address this issue. So <laughs> we'll see. We're also prepared just to get lambasted by the NRA and the far right wing if they even pay attention to what poets have to say. Yeah, well, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> Uh, but it's great that you're receiving some publicity about this, and obviously it's a, uh, an important and timely issue. Uh, I, I was just thinking earlier, too, about how much has—we we even mentioned this—how much has gone on since our 
last conversation. I mean, this yeah. this episode will drop as a you know a part two of of the the last show that we did, but it's been months in between when we actually recorded that show and that we're we're talking now, and so much has happened both in our in our lives, but also in in the country, and uh, we've had you know all the all the political turmoil but also two major mass shootings in this country since we spoke last and uh, yes. the, so it seems like this issue is as relevant as ever i can hardly put into words how strange our world is right now and how much people need projects like what you're doing um so Thank you for doing them, and I hope you, you keep at it. Yeah, well, thank you, and thanks for your work. And, you know, maybe once the book comes out and I get a chance to to read it, maybe that would be our part three, talking about uh, artists responding to to gun violence. Maybe that could be another episode, or you could, you know, we could we could see. But I, I'd be nice to get a chance to, to read the book and, and reflect a little bit on it. So. Yeah, it'd be fascinating. Okay. I'm in. Okay, well, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, John. It was great uh, hearing your answers to these questions. I'm just I'm so fascinated by how artists in other disciplines uh, do their work and think about the matrix of the aesthetic and the political. It's fascinating to me.